Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Ruth. We'll be looking at Ruth chapter 1. If you're following along in a pew Bible, that can be found on page 222. If you're following along in your bulletin, the text is printed there on pages 8 and 9. And there's a lot of beautiful text to cover today as we consider this story. Last week, we saw Naomi's grief, uh, the famine that had started in Bethlehem and had sent her and her family looking for food and traveling all the way to Moab, an unlikely place for faithful Israelites to end up. And after about 10 years there, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, had died, and both of her sons had died, and she was left there alone with her two daughters-in-law, who were both childless. And so they together were overwhelmed with sorrow and also facing a very bleak future. But words of God's grace broke into that scene. Naomi was not alone. God had seen her pain and he had visited his people by his grace and ended the famine and restocked Bethlehem. And so Naomi set out, as we saw last week, on that journey back from the far country with her two daughters-in-law. And we're going to pick up on that story today as we continue. But this whole narrative of chapter 1 and the entire book of Ruth, it really calls us to stop and ask some questions about the bitterness of life. It's always interesting to me what the weather will be like on different days when we preach. And today is Dark and gloomy, right? (laughs) I think it fits Ruth chapter 1 really well. That's what this is talking about. And you may not be in a dark and gloomy experience of life at the moment. Some of you are. Some of you aren't. Some of you know those who are and we're walking through those seasons together as a body. But wherever you may find yourself, the bitterness of this life is something that we will all face and something that we're all called to walk through together in some way as believers. And the book of Ruth does such an amazing job helping us understand, first of all, how God views us and what God is doing in those situations, and then also how we can walk through them both as Naomi's and as Ruth's uh, going through these difficult times. And so today we're going to see in particular how God meets us there in those bitter times even when we're questioning him, even when it seems like his hand is against us, and also how we can love those who are going through those seasons as well. And so um, I think it would be appropriate. We'll, we'll pray, and then we'll walk through this text together since it's a little bit more extended. So let me pray and ask God's help as we consider it, and then we'll dive into his word. Our Father in heaven, we come humbly and we ask that you would help us. Our hearts are in many places. Our lives are filled with many things. Our bodies are marked by weakness and tiredness and distraction and the cares and concerns of this life. But we know that we have gathered to worship you and to hear your voice. And we believe that you speak to us now through your word by the power of your spirit. And we ask that you would illumine our hearts to hear your voice to see the beauty of Christ and how he shows us your love, even in the midst of the bitterness and difficulties of this life. Help us in all these things, wherever we may be. Strengthen our faith. We ask this all in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Well, we'll consider this text in three points. The first point is the story of bitterness and blessing. We'll just walk through the narrative, seeing the elements of bitterness and blessing that are in it. And then we'll kind of shift to two applicational points. The second point is loving Naomi. And the third point is loving like Ruth. And so we'll look at those things in turn. So first of all, let's hear together this story of bitterness and blessing. And uh, I'll read verses 6 to 14, and you can follow along or you can just listen uh, to God's word as we move into this next movement of our story. Verse 6 picks up where we left off last week. It says, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt kindly with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of your husband. Then she kissed them. And they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and they wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Let's pause and just kind of consider what's happening here. Somewhere in the 30-mile trek from Moab back to Bethlehem, Naomi has this candid conversation with her daughters-in-law. And we may be asking, why didn't they talk about this back in Moab? And (laughs) not exactly sure. I've got a few ideas, though. I, I think if we were in Naomi's shoes, we may know that the pressure to stay in Moab, if she were to bring this up there, would be so strong. They all have their stuff settled into the house. This is where they had been. But setting out on the journey, she knew that she would be along the way. And then also, it would also give her a more persuasive element in what she's going to say. Her daughters-in-law are already packed up. And as they're marching out on this journey, and they've got 30 miles at least to go until they come to this strange place called the House of Bread, reality is setting in of what they are doing. And so Naomi um, appeals heavily to them as they've set out saying, turn back, return. She says this over and over again. And in her appeal to them, we see this deep care that she has for these women in her life. It's amazing this relationship that they've forged together as mother and daughter-in-laws. But she calls them my daughters. And she says that they have shown her family kindness. They have shown her family, and it's that Hebrew word there, said. They have shown her and the dead covenant love, covenant faithfulness. 
And she wants Yahweh, she wants the Lord to return that kindness to them. She wants the Lord to give them rest as they go back to Moab. And the theology of that's interesting, but we hear her care for them in what she says. And there's that phrase there, may the Lord show kindness to you. That can signal the official end of a relationship. It's used elsewhere in scripture to kind of say, okay, the responsibilities between us have now come to an end and you're in the Lord's hands. She views their obligations to each other as over and she seals it by kissing each of them goodbye. And the thought of this as Naomi kisses them and they realize what this is, that it's another loss to experience, causes them to weep together. And this isn't just tears running down their faces. This is them along the road howling in pain and grief, weeping for the loss that they feel together. But we see even as they're weeping, these women are not convinced. And in verse 10, they insist, we're going to go with you to your people. This is amazing. What they are saying in that is we are going to give up our futures in following you. Our love for you will guide our destiny. That is what's most important. And with that, Naomi really ramps it up. (laughs) She turns on the rhetoric and she commands them to turn back. And the focus of her call for them to return to Moab is so that they can get remarried. Naomi knows and they know that the bachelors of Bethlehem are not going to take Moabite wives when they arrive. That's not how things are supposed to work. And so their only chance for having another husband is going to come through Naomi. And we can tell from what she says, she's too old to have husbands for both of them. Kind of makes sense. I'm not real good at math, but I think we all can kind of figure that out, right? And so she says, essentially, imagine best case scenario. I get married and become pregnant tonight. It still wouldn't work. Do the math. Think how old you'll be when these boys are grown. And then also think about this. These boys, just old enough to be married, are they really going to think that marrying both of you is the best idea for them? It doesn't seem like a great plan. Even if this is possible, it's silly, ladies. Go and return to your land so you could find husbands and you could have rest from all of this misery that you have endured. And again, we hear her care in what she says. What is so bitter to her about this whole thing, and as we hear bitter throughout what we'll talk about today, think of it as the bitterness of the experiences of life, not necessarily that her heart has yet become hardened in bitterness, but what she is experiencing is the bitterness of this loss and grief. But what is so bitter for her is the loss that's come upon them because the Lord's hand has gone out against her. And that breaks her heart. And at this reality, uh, it, it sinks in again. And they lift up their voices again and they wept. And then Orpah does what makes sense. And we can't falter for it at all. She finished the goodbye by now kissing Naomi in return, sealing the end of the relationship essentially. And she returned to her people in Moab. But Ruth is still not convinced. 
She stays with Naomi. And verse 14 tells us she clung to her. What a loaded word she clung to her is. It's the same word that we hear in Genesis 2.24, how a, father, a husband leaves his family and cleaves, clings, becomes one with, shows deep, tender affection and love and commitment to his wife. Ruth is doing that to Naomi. And we see this amazing love that Ruth has for Naomi in verses 15 to 18. Let me read them for us. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Don't urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. You notice Naomi tries one more time. And this time, I mean, she pulls out all the stops. I mean, she's probably pointing to Orpah's fading silhouette as she's carrying her luggage back to Moab. And she says, see, your sister-in-law has come to her senses. Please, woman, go back, return. And we've seen how persuasive Naomi can be, but Ruth is no joke. (laughs) She has made up her mind. She has strengthened herself, determined to go with her. And Ruth can speak her mind and speak for herself. And it is a beautiful thing. She powerfully and poetically pledges her unfailing love and commitment to this broken woman, Naomi. She says, don't tell me anymore to leave you. I am going with you. And she's not just walking with her to Bethlehem. She says, I will lodge there with you. I am going to live there with you. And it's not just a change of address for Ruth. Oh, forward all my mail to Bethlehem, please. But instead, we hear that she's renouncing her Moabite identity. Her people and her gods that she had sought since she was a little girl to protect and care for her and provide for her. She's doing away with all of that for Naomi's people and for Naomi's God. And she's not just doing this until Naomi dies and then moving back to Moab. She says, where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. She is choosing to be buried in Israel rather than in Moab. And she seals it with an oath. May the Lord do so to me and more, if anything but death parts us. You know, earlier Naomi had said that Ruth and Orpah had shown faithfulness, covenant love to her and to the dead. But here we see Ruth's pledge of covenant love to Naomi on a level that's rarely seen by any person in the scriptures. It's amazing what she says. And in verse 18, it says, when Naomi saw that she was determined or had steeled herself to go with her, she said no more. She knows that that's it. <laughs> There's no, no more use of trying to talk her out of it. Ruth has made up her mind. What's fascinating to me here is it seems like silence, at least about this issue, dominates the rest of the way to Bethlehem. 
In the face of such an amazing expression of love, Naomi is silent. And we'll talk about that a little bit more later. But then the scene fades, screen fades to black, and then it comes back on with their arrival in Bethlehem in verses 19 to 22. And, And let me read 19 to 21, and then we'll look at 22 in a moment. It says, so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? It's such a powerful scene. As they come through the city's gates, you know, that's how you'd enter the city, the gates that protected it. You come through the gates, and as they do, there's this outburst of excitement. And I mean, think about it. People come through the gates all the time. I mean, do we notice every time someone exits the freeway and turns onto Ninth Avenue or something? Um, people are coming and going, but but the Lord has kind of supernaturally ordained this outburst of excitement. It says the whole town was stirred. It's, it's language that speaks of the Ark of the Covenant arriving back in Israel or Solomon being coronated. There's this celebration and you can picture these women coming close. It's been over a decade and they're, that, that looks like Naomi. Could that be Naomi? Is it really her after so long? But imagine how emotionally overwhelming this whole scene is for Naomi. This is her first time back in Bethlehem in over a decade. And the sights, the smells, the sounds bring memories of Abimelech flooding back to her. And she sees and smells the places where Malon and Killian had played when they were young. And as she sees those gates, she remembers that the last time she saw those gates, she was with her husband and her boys were with her and they were leaving to find bread. And as she has those images flooding back and she's in the present now experiencing all of that, her mind is also flashing to memories of Moab as dirt is thrown over the grave's of her husband and her sons. And so this, what is supposed to be, and in the eyes of others, this time of celebration and joy over what God was doing is for her just a reminder of the bitterness and emptiness that she has experienced in this life. And so as she hears the sound of her name upon the lips of other people, Naomi, is this Naomi? And Naomi means lovely and pleasant. And she hears it and feels it in this place and it just seems unthinkable. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. You know, names in biblical times were given to reflect someone's inner character. You were given a name at birth, and it was kind of understood that it it would shape who you were in some way and shape your conduct. And what's really significant about names is when someone receives a new name, 
As we see all throughout the Bible, Abram becoming Abraham, Jacob becoming Israel, and Simon becoming Peter, Saul, Paul. So we see this going on all over the place. But what's so significant about the change of name is it signifies this change of character, but it also signifies a change in destiny, doesn't it? And so what Naomi says as she hears that name is she says, my life is not characterized by loveliness. There is nothing pleasant about me being here. Instead, call me Mara, bitterness, because my life is characterized by, it is full of bitterness. And I know that setting foot here means bitterness is my destiny. Naomi has reason for this bitterness in her life. She says, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. She places the blame squarely upon God's shoulders. And there's this play on words there that we don't necessarily hear in English, but bitter, dealt bitterly is from the same root as Mara, the name kind of bitterness that's going on there. And so it's, it's something, we could translate it something like this, call me Mara, for the Lord has cruelly marred me. Call me bitter because the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. And Naomi has some powerful words to say about God's role in all of this. In verse 21, she says, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. And as we look at how that sentence is structured in the original, you have Naomi on one end of the sentence and you have Yahweh on the other. And in between, she was full but he has made her empty. They are opposed to each other. Her life was full of fullness, but Yahweh has brought her emptiness. She left full. She had her husband. She had her sons, but now she is back with none of them. It says, as 21 continues, the Lord has testified against me. The Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Testified there has legal overtones. It's someone bringing legal testimony against the accused. We think of a courtroom scene and and the image that she's calling to mind is this, that she is the defendant. She's not even really sure what the charges are. She was full at one moment and now she's empty. But then she finds out that Yahweh has taken the stand and he has testified against her. Case closed. That is that. And now all there is for her to do is to bear her punishment, the evil, the calamity that he has brought upon her life. And so if we picture this as a scene, we've been zooming in and zooming in to Naomi's face and her pain as she is saying these words. And as these words are ringing in our ears, The narrator is going to bring the scene to a close, and he does that in verse 22 as he starts to zoom back out. He says in the summary, So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. You know, as the curtain falls on this scene, or as the credits start playing, and then it's saying, like, next episode in 10, 9, 8, you know, and uh, as we binge watch the, the book of Ruth, 
as it closes out, we have moved. See the movement of what's happened as we left Naomi, or yeah, Naomi in verse 5. She was this nameless woman who had bread in her hand but was empty in Moab. And now we've moved all the way to Naomi who's back in Bethlehem, but she's wrestling with her name. And then the camera zooms out and what do we see? Ruth, the Moabite, who's been off the scene altogether, completely ignored by Naomi and the townspeople. She is there beside her, pledging her love and faith in a way that's unheard of in human relationships. And as it continues to zoom out, it tells us, as we look at the fields all around, it's the beginning of barley harvest when she arrives. The fields all around them are bursting with the blessing of God. And these things are all signs of the fact that God, by his grace, has seen Naomi in her pain, and he's committed to blessing Naomi in her bitterness. And we will see how he does that in the weeks to come. If you need to binge watch it, you can keep reading, but please don't do that yet. There there are a few things I think we need to see about chapter one. Feel the, the weight and the beauty of what this part of scripture teaches us. The first thing that I think it really shows us, our, our second point as we move into application, is it shows us what it means to love Naomi. Loving Naomi is something that we see going on here. How is it for you as you hear Naomi's words? I think some of us are uncomfortable, aren't we? Uh, Can we move on to chapter two? Like as we hear Naomi's words said, we're like, whoo, I'd be careful. Shouldn't really say those things to God. Better watch it. And maybe we've never wrestled with the, the questions and the tensions that Naomi is bringing out. Others of you may say, you know what? That's exactly how I feel. That's what I was asking God on the drive here. That's what I was wondering about as I wept in my bed last night. And I didn't know that we're allowed to ask and to say such things before the Almighty. But this passage, it shows us two things as we seek to understand and love Naomi and how she's presented here. We need to hear her faith and we need to learn from her pain. We need to hear her faith and learn from her pain. First, hear Naomi's faith. There is faith in Naomi's words. They may not be things we say in Sunday school or that we're mentioning to each other when we're having coffee, but they could be. They're not where we want Naomi to stay. They're not where we want the Christian life to remain forever. But they are appropriate words of faith for those who are following the Lord in the bitterness of life. And so we're called to hear what's there. In attributing her bitterness to God, in placing the blame squarely upon his shoulders, do you know what she's at least doing? She's acknowledging his presence and his role in this whole thing. She's not writing him off altogether. She is wrestling with his verdict. She's wrestling with his actions, but she knows that he's there and that's what makes this so hard, right? 
And as one commentator said, her faith is cloaked in bitter complaint. It's faith that's there, but it's complaint that we hear first and foremost. But as we hear through the complaint to her words, we can hear what is so challenging for her. She uses the name Almighty or Shaddai a few times to speak of the Lord. And it's this this kind of older phrase and, and older things, but it also highlights as it's used the God's sovereign power and control of all things. That's why translating it the Almighty, Shaddai being the Almighty, is probably a good way to translate it. She is not denying, she is instead affirming God's sovereignty, God's control over all things, his ruling, his presence. But she has trouble seeing with how the Almighty is also the Lord who's good to her. She knows that Yahweh can be good. She asked that Yahweh would show loving kindness to Ruth and Orpah, but she feels that he has treated her as an enemy. His hand has gone out against her. He has made her life bitter. He has testified against her. He has brought disaster or evil upon her. You know, in many ways, Naomi is functioning like a Job character, isn't she? The narrator all throughout this has been very careful not to specifically attribute sin to what Naomi has done. That journey to Moab, it's complicated. We don't know how she got there. She's definitely not innocent, but the heart of her complaint is this. The punishment, the bitterness, it doesn't seem proportionate. It doesn't seem to square with a God who says he's good to his people, that he loves orphans and widows. Why is he making more of them? That's what she's wrestling with. You know what? Naomi is not alone in these questions. These accusations are made all throughout Scripture by faithful believers. Moses, back in Exodus chapter 5, when he saw how the Egyptians were treating the Hebrews after he had gone to Pharaoh, and now all of a sudden they're being treated way worse. He says, Lord, why have you done evil to these people? Later, when the people continued to complain against Moses in Numbers 11, why, Lord, are you doing evil to me if things are this hard? Elijah, in another time of famine, remember he comes and he brings food in the midst of a famine to the widow of Zarephath and to her son. And after sustaining their lives, God strikes the boy dead. The boy dies. And Elijah, when he sees her dead son, he said, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity or evil upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Why are you doing these evil things, God? And many others in scripture, and especially the psalmists, they ask similar things. They make similar accusations of God. And you know what? You may be uncomfortable sitting there right now. The Bible's not uncomfortable with those questions. God is not uncomfortable with those accusations. The Bible's not going out of its way at all to edit this out or to quickly add, oh, by the way, that's not what we should say. Um, The Bible doesn't come with strikethroughs through half of the Psalms, right? It says these are the words of God's people. Pray them to him. Sing them to him. If anything, 
The Bible honors this honest wrestling with God. Ruth is exemplary for her loving kindness and um, what she's going to show to Naomi. But Naomi is exemplary in this passage for her honesty of what she is dealing with. And the Bible understands and God understands that this is just what is going to happen if we're going to take seriously what God says about himself, which is that he's all-powerful, he's in control of everything, that he is just and he is good and that he brings blessing. If we're going to hold what he says there and then live this experience in a fallen world with our limited perspective as we encounter the bitterness of this life, then God's posture to us really is this. Of course you feel that way. This is what it looks like. This is what it feels like on the ground when you are seeking to understand and you are not God. This is a legitimate complaint. And so if these are complaints that you have for God, if these are questions that you find nagging at your soul, if these are questions that visit you on your bed or as you're going throughout your day, you are not alone. Moses, Elijah, Job, Naomi, the psalmist, faithful have asked these complaints for thousands of years. And these complaints do not mean that you don't have faith or that you are not a Christian. Take those complaints. Take those questions to the Lord. Tell him these things. Ask him these questions. He can handle it and he welcomes the faith that's there. And if people in your life are asking these questions or adamantly making complaints, we don't need to freak out. You know what may be happening? We may be talking to Moses or to Elijah or to Naomi along their journey of faith. You can listen. You can weep. You can help them take these things to the Lord. And we'll talk about more ways to love as we come to our last point. But as we think about loving Naomi, we think of hearing Naomi's faith. But secondly, we should also learn from Naomi's pain. Learn from Naomi's pain. We can see things about our own hearts as, we, as Naomi so honestly tells us what's in hers. And as we listen to her, her perspective of her life, it shrinks to her pain, doesn't it? Her pain is real. And we don't want to take that away from her. But her pain becomes all that she sees. And in that, her memory became selective, didn't it? Her memory became selective. She's saying, I went away full, but now Yahweh has brought me back empty. On the one hand, that's so true. She left with husbands and sons, and now she comes back without them. But what she's leaving out is, why did they leave Bethlehem in the first place? They left Bethlehem because they were not full. They were hungry. They didn't know how they were going to survive. And so her life in reality was really always a mixture of fullness and emptiness. But in the midst of her pain and grief, it becomes all or nothing. That was fullness, and this is now nothing but emptiness. And so her memory became selective in her pain. 
And that's part of what we often experience in grief, isn't it? But the Lord wants us to see that and to know that and to bring that to him. And with that, she couldn't see the blessings in her life, could she? God is there blessing her. Now, these blessings would never bring back Elimelech or her boys. They wouldn't just take away all of the loss, but God's goodness was there. Ruth is by her side, professing to her the most amazing love and faith that the Bible has almost ever known. (laughs) And she's there with her, but Naomi doesn't talk to her. Naomi doesn't see her. Naomi says, call me Mara, right? And what she also doesn't see is that as they come into the city, barley is just bursting forth, ready to harvest, and wheat and grain would follow. What the Lord wants Naomi to come to see is even in the midst of that true and genuine pain, more is happening. The Lord wants her to also see and to also trust that just as he brought barley back to Bethlehem, he will keep his promise to fill her. And he wants her to just know that and to walk in the trust of that, even in the midst of the pain. And so if you are in the Naomi experience, if the bitterness of life is overwhelming to you, this chapter reminds us that God sees you in your pain and he loves you and he is committed to bless you and make you full, even if all you can feel right now is the bitterness and emptiness of those years in Moab. Take your complaint to him. Ask him to help you see and to trust that more is there than just the bitterness. In this passage, you know, it helps us love the Naomi, or um, yeah, love Naomi, (laughs) Part of the way it does that, though, is it shows us how to love like Ruth. Love like Ruth. And I I know we've spent some time already, but I I think this is worth it, and it it also brings us to the gospel. So uh, as we come to our third point, loving like Ruth, let's just think for a few moments of what she teaches us. Ruth is an amazing example of faith, isn't she? She leaves her people her gods, her land. She leaves everything because she's wholeheartedly resolved to follow Yahweh and never turn back. Wow, (laughs) we long for that kind of faith. Some say that her faith is even greater than Abraham's. He left his homeland, but he had a promise, didn't he, of what God was going to do. He did what Ruth did. Ruth doesn't have those same words of promise. She's a Moabitess who's following a woman of emptiness, but she is willing to stake it all for Yahweh. And she's a beautiful picture of the call to discipleship that Jesus gives to his followers of what it means to leave everything and to wholeheartedly follow after him throughout the entirety of our lives. But one of the things that Ruth shows us is that the commitment to follow Jesus, the commitment to walk with God, also involves a commitment to his people. It's a commitment to his body, his bride, the church. And the church today, just like the people of God and the people of Bethlehem back then, isn't a perfect place. We often say that it's a messy place, right? 
Naomi hasn't been the best to Ruth at the moment. She's ignored her for 30 miles and is only talking about her pain, didn't even introduce her to the women of the town. We're going to see later how the people of the town treat Ruth, and it's probably not all that great. God's people aren't always thriving in their experience of life, but Ruth shows us a few things about loving the Naomi's in our life as we care for them as they walk through the bitter seasons. You see, we see from Ruth that her love and her commitment, they weren't based upon what Naomi would give her in response, were they? She continued to love and care for Naomi, even when she's met with indifference. She didn't take it personally when all Naomi could see was her own pain. Ruth wasn't lecturing or rushing. She was loving. I've had many Christians tell me, as they share about the hard things in their life, they tell me this common experience. I have sought to tell other believers about the pain that I'm feeling, but I couldn't even finish telling them my sentence, my story, before they're telling me, but God is doing something good. But he's going to use this in your life. I couldn't even get it all out. And with Ruth, we find something so different, don't we? She walked 30 miles in silence all the way back to Bethlehem. And as Naomi is talking about her pain in front of the townspeople, she's not saying to her, hey, wait a minute, I'm here, I'm here. God's blessing you. Don't you see that I'm here? Don't you see the barley, Naomi? Come on, I don't think we should change your name yet. Like, let's talk about this, right? No, she is able to patiently bear with Naomi's expression of pain. And what did she do? She wept. She overlooked offenses. And as we'll talk about next week, she went out and she got food for them. (laughs) Ruth had her own grief. She's dealing with her own journey of faith. And yet her love for Naomi and trust in God will be used by God to bless Naomi in his time. But she didn't need to rush it because God was doing more and he was doing it through her. And so we as the church... We can be a place where Naomi's are welcomed and loved, where they are clung to in Christ, and where they are cared for in their pain, and where we don't need to rush that process, but we can show up to hear and to weep and to comfort, and in due time, help them take those things to the Lord and to ask for help to trust his promises. And ultimately, and here's the really good part, Ruth points us to an even greater love. Ruth gives us a picture of God's love for us in Jesus. Naomi's wrestling with what to call herself. (laughs) Am I pleasant or lovely, or am I in a world of bitterness? But for us, the the, the question is actually answered clearly. Mara is really the name we all are born with, isn't it? Because of Adam's sin, bitterness is what characterizes our life. Bitterness is what characterizes our destiny. We have clearly broken God's law. We deserve more than famine and time in Moab. We deserve the verdict of the wages of sin, which is death. And God has heard all of that testimony 
(laughs) He doesn't need to take the stand against us. It's already clear. He knew the verdict of what we deserved, but he has done the most unexpected thing. He could have done what made sense like Orpah did. He could have left us in our emptiness and in our pain. But instead, he has clung to us in affection and love. And he has made the most beautiful promise to us that we will be his people and that he will be our God, not just until death do us part, but forever. You know, we see how Ruth left all that she had in order to bless the unworthy Naomi. But the Son of God left the glories of heaven and he bound himself to the bitterness of our fallen humanity by taking our nature upon himself. And in his death on the cross, he bore all the sin that has brought us this world of bitterness. He drank the bitter cup of God's wrath for us. And his righteousness has now become ours. Naomi has become our name. That before the Father, on account of the work of Jesus, we are viewed as lovely and as pleasant as Jesus himself to the Father because of how our sins have been paid for and his righteousness has been given to us and we have been adopted as sons and daughters of God himself. And so Naomi, pleasantness is our name and it is our destiny. Now we continue in the bitterness and the grief of this life, don't we? Mara is our experience and This experience of life can make us think that God is somehow testifying against us. That's how it can feel on the ground. But the gospel comes to us like Naomi in her pain, and it says, wait, zoom out and see the cross. See what God has promised. Because through it, he has testified. He has sworn that he is now for us. And there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he has sworn an oath upon his very own name that nothing will ultimately separate us from his love in Christ. And so now he is with us. He's with us in our sorrow and in our pain. And one day when Jesus returns, It will be like we heard in our scripture reading when that log was thrown into the bitter water and everything that was bitter somehow became sweet. Somehow God in the mystery of his ways will transform this bitterness and these tears that we experience into something that is sweet and that is beautiful, that is glorious in his time and in a way that only he can understand. And we will experience the resting place, the rest, not of a husband in Moab or Bethlehem, but of dwelling with God as the bride of Christ forever. That's what he's promised us. And that's the journey we have until he comes. You know, as we close and prepare even for the Lord's Supper, This song that we're going to sing, Be Still My Soul, captures so well this experience we've been talking about. And and I invite you to 
Um, open your bulletin to page 11 where the words are printed there. It's also page 689 in the Trinity Hymnal. We're going to sing it in a moment. But before we do, I just want you to hear these last two stanzas so that we can then sing them to one another and take them back to the Lord as we prepare. The third stanza says this, Be still my soul when dearest friends depart and all is darkened in the veil of tears. Then you shall better know his love, his heart, who comes to soothe your sorrow and your fears. Be still my soul. Your Jesus can repay from his own fullness all he takes away. Be still my soul. The hour is hastening on when we shall be forever with the Lord. When disappointment, grief, and fear are gone, sorrow forgot, love's purest joys restored. Be still my soul. When change and tears are past, all safe and blessed, we shall meet at last. That is our journey. And that is the good news of the gospel until our Lord comes again. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are amazed at your understanding of the bitterness of the experiences of this life. We pray that you would help us to believe both in your sovereign power and control and also your goodness and your grace. We pray that you would strengthen our faith in all that the cross proclaims to us about who you really are as we come to you through the Lord Jesus Christ. For those who don't know this love and grace, I pray that you would help them to see the beauty of this forgiveness in Christ. And for those of us who do, will you strengthen our faith until he comes again? It's in his name we pray. Amen.